should be getting one of your handouts. I'm going to talk to you about the, a little bit about the seven churches of Asia. Tell you what that's all about. And uh, if you look with us in Revelations chapter 1 and verse 10 to start with, this is where we're going to start, but this is not the bulk of our lesson. And uh, <clears throat> I want you to go with me here to Revelations chapter 1 and verse 10. And uh, this is John, the revelator, John same John that's in the Bible that's mentioned, not John the Baptist, but John, brother James. That was one of the 12 apostles of Jesus. And uh, he was the last of all of the apostles. There, there was 12. Judas says, Care, fail God. And Paul was put there in his place by the, by the Lord. He was the apostle to the Gentile. So there were 12 apostles, basically. And... Uh, this is John writing. The others were all martyred. John was the only one that lived to be an old man, and he was an old person when he wrote this book of Revelation. I think it was 90, 96 A.D., I think is when, what the date is on that, 96 A.D. that he wrote this book. And uh, I'm going to read verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord's day, incidentally, is Sunday. And I won't go into detail on that, but you can look it up sometime study it. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet saying, verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. As you know, that's the first and the last al letters in the Greek alphabet. And uh, it's just it's symbolic of the Lord saying, I'm the first and I'm the last. And what thou seest, look at this closely now, right? in a book, and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. Seven churches which are in Asia. Now, what do we need here? Oh, this is not... Is it coming up? Okay, thank you. I didn't know that was on. not on. Thank you, brother. And uh, I'm going to give you a map here so that you'll see where we're, what we're talking about, where Asia is, and then we're going to show you the seven churches here. This was uh, this is a map of the Mediterranean Sea, and uh, we'll get in a little closer here. And this was the Isle of Patmos that John was on when he received this revelation right here. Patmos, right here. This is Turkey as we know it today. All of this is the country of Turkey. This is Greece up in here and then on up into other countries up in, in Eastern Asia, uh, Eastern uh, Europe. This is Italy. I think most of you recognize the boot in Sicily here, so forth. Uh, this is the Alacrete. And uh, this is Palestine over in here. This is Jerusalem right over here where my pen is right here. And so this is this was Palestine. And uh, this is the area that he's talking about. And it was called Asia. Asia is the word, if you can see it and read it there. But Asia was this area right in here. And these were the seven churches of Asia. 
And the reason, I guess, that the Lord had John writing to them was because John founded all of those churches except Ephesus, the first the one that's mentioned here. He was the founder of them. And uh, so the Lord said, write unto the churches of Ephesus. Now, here are the names of them, and I'll show you where they are on this map. It says, which are in Asia unto Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamos and Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Incidentally, this is where the city of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was named from right here. It was named after this church because in all of these seven churches, it seemed to have had the best report of all of them from the Lord. And so uh, when Philadelphia was established by some religious people many, many moons ago, uh, it was they chose that name because they liked it because it was a favorable uh, had a favorable write-up in the Bible about them. Now, here, here's where they are. I'm going to point them out to you. Ephesus is here. Smyrna is here. Pergamos is here. Sardis is here. Thyatira is here. Sardis is here. Philadelphia is here. And Laodicea is right here. So you can see they're right here in a little circle, and you can hardly see them, but anyhow, you get an idea here. They were close. And those churches actually existed, and the book of Revelation here was written to them with the problems that they were facing, problems they were having, what they were, what, what Paul, uh, what John was having to say to them. All right. So I want to talk to you about these seven churches here of Asia. Now, uh, let me go a little bit further here, and uh, I want to talk to you about the first one. Now, I'm not going to deal with all of these seven churches. Uh, I have Bible lessons that I could teach for six months on the seven churches of Asia. I call it sometimes the hidden epistle. And it's, it's recorded in the first, in, the, in the Revelations chapters. It mentions it in chapter one, but they're recorded, their description in chapters two and chapter three of the book of Revelation. And uh, those two chapters and those two chapters only. Now, there is also some other understanding about the book of Revelation and these two churches. And that is these churches is that is they represent periods of time in the church age, periods of time in the church age. Now, this is the church age. And while that these churches were real churches and they existed back then, uh, Bible scholars have concluded that they represented the period of time throughout the church age because of the description God gave about each one of these churches. And so here is uh, Ephesus is the first one that's in blue here, and it goes from about 33 A.D. to about 100 A.D. And then uh, the Smyrna was a persecuted church. There were a Roman persecution happened in there. And it just says they should be persecuted 10 days. And they were persecuted under 10 different persecutions under the old Roman Empire by Roman emperors. I'll give you their periods of time when those were and the, the, the emperors that were reigning when they were and so forth. That's immaterial, though. Anyhow, per, Pergamos is the next one. This is the one that fell away. They lost what they had in God. And then this is the oppressed church. This was the dark ages of the middle of the, of the of Europe back in those times. 
And then there began to be uh, the Reformation period. And then there was the evangelistic church, which is, uh, is Philadelphia. And then last of all is the Laodicean church, which started around 1900. And this is a time element. These time frames here, representing various times in the church age, is also thought to, believe, to be various places in the world. In other words, the characteristic of Laodicea and the characteristic of Ephesus, and each one of these can be somewhere in the world. One church can be flourishing with prosperity in one part of the world. Another church in another part of the world can be undergoing persecution. Another church can be undergoing a struggle or a hard struggle. Another one in revival, depending on what part of the world you're in, what missions, programs, so forth. So it's also looked at that possibly it has a tendency to be that respect. I want to talk to you only about two of these. And I want to talk to you about Ephesus here. And I want to talk to you about Laodicea because of what it says about them and how that will apply to us in our lesson today. Everybody still with me? All right. God bless you. Now, look here in our notes, if you would, with me for a moment. And uh, I'm going to just take this off and uh, these, the map and the chart there. And I want you to look with us here in uh, A. Asia is Western Turkey. We explained that to you. The seven churches were actually churches that existed then. We talked to you about that. C. They also represented seven periods of time throughout the church age. And we showed you the chart on that just then. D, their, quanti their uh, qualities and failures are brought out in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. We talked to you about that. Today, we will be looking at the first church and the last church of these two churches, Ephesus and uh, Laodicea. Uh, so just look with us in it, and you'll never hear those names anywhere else except Philadelphia, probably anywhere else except in the Bible here and uh, what it has to say about them. Now, I want you to look at number two here, the church of Ephesus. This was the first one. Look at it very closely. I'm going to go to chapter two now and uh, verse one. We'll read one and two, just one line here in chapter two, verse one, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus. Notice that. Now look at verse two. Now I'll, I'll miss some verses just to save time so we don't get bogged down in a lot of details that, that does not pertain to the lesson here. Look at number two. I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars. In other words, you are a good group of people. You're a good bunch of God-fearing church people. And you have some qualities about you. Now look at verse 4. This is where we're going. 4 and 5. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Now I'm going to talk to you about this. Ephesus was beginning to slip from what they had in God. Their place, their position, their power, the anointing of the Lord, the Holy Ghost moving in their services, the Spirit of God being there. And 
he said to them, Nevertheless, I have said what against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. First love. And he goes on to say in verse 5, Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. The word candlestick was another uh, description of these seven churches found in chapter 1 that we didn't read, but it described them as the uh, menorah, the seven golden candlesticks and so forth which also represents the church age. Now, I want you to look again at this verse 4 here. Verse 4. Thou hast left thy first love. Now, let me just say something here. When we get saved, got saved, or we get saved, and if you got, have gotten saved, you felt such a love for the Lord. Oh, you, could just, you just love the Lord with all of your heart. I mean, you just was so happy in the Lord and that was a beautiful love that you had for Jesus Christ in your heart and in your life but as time goes along we can get bogged down with things and we can lose what we felt initially when we came to God and we can lose that first love that we had and let it slip through our fingers we can let it slip through our fingers now, uh, I, uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about this. If you'll go to number three here, I'm going to move into this a little bit more. Malachi 2.11. Malachi 2.11. I want you to look at this verse, verse of Scripture with me very closely here. And this is talking about, the, about Israel, only it was a southern kingdom called Judah. When Israel, and, and when Israel was divided and the northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern end it, it was called Judah. And God had brought them back from the Babylonian captivity and had reestablished them. Now look what it says here in Malachi about Judah's progress in developing and growing in the Lord. Look at 2.11, I mean 2.11. Judah hath dealt treacherously and hath and, and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord which he loved he loved it at one time the word love there's past tense and is referring to the love that Judah had for holiness in the Lord he says that profaned the holiness of the Lord which he at one time I should say here at one time loved Love being past tense. Does that say which he loved, loves, but loved, past tense, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. And he's saying here that Judah one time who loved God with all of their heart and loved holiness, the holiness of the Lord, that God said, be ye holy for I am holy. And all the things that the Lord talked about, his holiness in the word, Judah had left that and was now pursuing things out here in the world. It was like a man who had a young wife and now he's going to leave her and he's going to chase off after something else out there. And we all know that that is against the word of God and that's against God and that's a, that's a falling away. But that's what the Lord also was referring when he said, Ephesus, you have left your first love. He didn't say you lost it. You left it. 
you turn your back on it. And there's a, a first love that God would have us always to be uh, always concerned about and diligent about in our walk with the Lord. Uh, many of you know, I'm just going to quote a little history here to you. But Charles Lindbergh, as you well know, was the first man to cross the Atlantic solo in uh, 1927, I think it was. And he flew across the Atlantic solo, became very famous for that. His wife's name was Anne, Anne uh, uh, Lindbergh. It was uh, Charles Lindbergh and Anne Lindbergh. And they were very happy. They, got, they were prosperous. They were blessed. They had a baby. And one night, somebody kidnapped that baby out of their house. How many of you know the story there involved? Have you ever been there? I see several hands, some of the older ones. Somebody kidnapped the baby of Charles Lindbergh and Ann Lindbergh's baby. And they wanted a ransom. So they dug up and got gathered all the money that the, the, the kidnappers had asked for, and they gave them the ransom. And but the baby they never found. The baby never showed up. And uh, I think the baby died or something happened with the baby, but the baby was never recovered. And they paid the ransom later on. Those kidnappers were caught, tried, and they were sent to the electric chair. That, you know, took care of that. But Anne dealt with this thing very severely. In 1955, she wrote a book. She was a writer, and she's also a pilot. She flew with him sometime on different flights. And in 1955, she wrote a book on, on, entitled Gifts from the Sea, and it was about seashells. Now, listen to me closely on this, folks. This is not a marriage seminar, but we'll get there. We're going to touch base on it a little bit here. The gifts of the sea, she talked about how the different seashells represents different stages of our lives. And I read the book back in 1955 myself, and that's why I know about it. But she says that when a couple first gets married, they're like, uh, they're like two seashells like this, like sunrise shell. And she talked about the sunrise shell, how that they, they're hinged together very weakly right here in the middle, but they stand as though they're looking at each other, sort of like a young couple looking over the table, eating dinner together, either dating, going to get married, or they are married, or they're a young married couple, and they love each other. And he loves her, and she loves him. But she went on to say that it's fragile at the bottom. It can be fragile. And then she went on to say, then she compared it with the, uh, another one that she compared it with was the oyster shell. It was like the family that's knitted together tight. It's ugly. It's, uh, it's not beautiful. Those have all that beautiful appearance, but they're tight. And there's the oyster shell and the oysters are growing and the shell's growing and everything, but it's just a real tight thing. It's like a family growing. And, uh, the reason I'm telling you that is because she said, that in that sunrise state, that has to be renewed in a marriage. She said, what kept us going, and later they had other children and had a family and went on to raise a, a beautiful family, but they lost that child. And what kept them going and surviving through that great tragedy in their life 
was the fact that they never forgot their love for each other. Now, I'm going to say this to all of us here. Husbands and wives, keep that youthful love that we have. I don't care if it's 50 years old. Keep it alive in your life. Keep it alive in your life. Take your wife out on a date sometimes. You know, if you're this, I guess we got a lot of grandparents in here. I don't know about how many parents, and maybe they're in another class someplace. But when there's children involved, sometimes you've got to get somebody to come in and just sort of look after the children and take your wife out on a date. Praise the Lord. And just let her know. Spend time with just her and her with you. And there's something about that first love that you have to keep it going. You have to keep it flowing. You have to keep it there. Praise the Lord. And I'm only telling you that as an example here that you and I, in our walk with God, we have got to maintain and keep, praise the Lord, the first love. Whatever is lost, you have left your first love. You left it. You walked away from it. You walked away from it. We had a love in God when we first came to the Lord, praise the Lord, and we walked away from it. But our wives and our husbands, praise the Lord. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures to you here. This is one found in Proverbs 5:18. It's not in your notes. Just let me, I'm going to read you two of them real quick. Let thy fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of thy youth. This is found in Proverbs 5 and 18. Rejoice. And the wife of thy youth. This is another one found in Ecclesiastes. And this is in 9.9 of Ecclesiastes. Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest all the days of the life of thy vanity, which he hath given thee under the sun, all the days of thy vanity, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the, under the sun. So he says, live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest. Now, I'm saying all of that because nowadays people can just walk away from a marriage. And I'm not talking about marriages here. I'm really not. But I am talking about things in the Christian life that we can walk away from that God has put in our lives that we don't deem important anymore. And we don't love it anymore. And what it said about the, about Judah was that Judah had lost their love for the holiness of the Lord. The holiness of the Lord. Now, I'm going to talk to you about that a little bit. Uh, I want you to look at 1 Peter 1.15. 1 Peter 1.15. Praise the Lord. 1 Peter 1.15. But as he which hath, and I'm, I'm right here now. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And this is the New Testament scripture that the Lord gives us in the word of God here concerning the importance of being a holy Christian. Look at 7.1. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Not just filthiness of the flesh, but also of the spirit. Cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness 
in the fear of the Lord. Because holiness, praise the Lord, is getting ourselves clean because God is clean. Praise the Lord. And holiness has always been a big factor, and it's a very big factor in our walk with God and in our serving the Lord. Praise the Lord. So I think in our walking with the Lord, we've got to understand how important it is to be a holy people. Amen. We've got to lay down some things in this old world and leave them all in the world and don't go back to them. Amen. But walk with God in holiness. Look holy, act holy, walk holy, speak holy. Praise the Lord. The guy said, walk right, talk right, and spit white. <laughs> I mean, don't be, a, don't be a tobacco spitter, all that kind of stuff. I'm just talking about holiness here in general. Praise the Lord. So the Bible teaches us that we should be that. Now, this is what it said, that thou hast left thy first love, which in Judah was holiness. And I say this today, that it's easy for a church or for us as individuals to leave holiness behind us and walk away from it. And it's like us leaving that first love we had. When you first got saved, somebody said, oh, this is how you are to live. No problem. I was glad to do so. Praise the Lord. But we should always say, I want to hold on to the things that God has given us that is holy, that we may walk with God in the spirit and in the wonderful examples of holiness that he has set before us. Now, uh, let me move on a little further here. I'm going to go here to the church of Laodicea for a moment. Church of Laodicea. Then I'm going to come back and talk to you about some, some more things. Look in Laodicea. And uh, let me put the chart back up here. This is the church we're going to talk about right now. This is the last one. This is the last one. I'm going to talk to you about how it came about too. The Laodicean church. Now look with us and in, in, uh, go back to uh, Revelations chapter 2. Where we were to start with. I want you to go to chapter 3 in, in Revelations. Revelations chapter 3. And uh, look with us in verse 14. Everybody there? Three fourteen. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. Now, we're back on the seven churches of Asia now. We dealt with the first one. Now, we're talking about the last one. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would that thou were, were, were cold or hot. You're lukewarm. In other words, you're lukewarm. You're not cold or hot. It's sort of like having a hot cup of coffee or a cold glass of iced tea. You don't want it in between. You want it either hot coffee or, or hot tea, or you want cold tea or a cold drink. You know, whatever it is, a Pepsi. Or, I'm not going to get into all that, but anyhow, you know what I'm talking about. He says, I... I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. Now, whether that were hot, cold or hot. Verse 16. So then, because thou art lukewarm. 
and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Now the Lord's telling them they're not where they ought to be. And he was very displeased with this Laodicean church. Because thou sayest, I am rich. Look at that. And increase with goods. And have need of nothing. I got everything. And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. You don't even know the spiritual condition you're in. I'm not preaching to the church here. I'm talking about what it can become. We can become. Anybody can become. Praise the Lord. And he says, go verse 18. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich and and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed. White raiment is the appearance of the bride. Praise the Lord, the bride. And the, I can go, take you over to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation and show you where that the bride uh, the, at the last at the last supper is going to be wear, dressed in white. And it tells all about it, describes it. And uh, says that the white raiment, and thou mayest be clothed, that thou that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with thy salves, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke, and chasten, be zealous therefore, and repent. So God is saying to the Laodicean church, I love you, but you're slipping away, and I'm not going to continue to to have you as my people or as my church if you continue to be the way you are because they had lost so much. They lost so much. Now, I want to talk, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about it because holiness is a big factor in our serving God and walking with the Lord. I'll give you some scriptures on it in a minute and what the Bible has to say about holiness. Let me uh, look in your notes there for a minute. I want to talk to you about John and Charles Wesley, some of you don't know, this is church history now. Lessons we learned from church history. John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield, uh, they ignited the Great Awakening Revival in the thir- in 1730s. Returning to the holiness was their main message. Now, I've read both of these men's biography, about George, Whitfield, uh, George Whitfield and also uh, John Wesley. Charles Wesley was John's brother. Charles Wesley wrote over 5,000 hymns. These guys all went to Oxford University in England together back in the 1700s. And as they began to study the Bible, they began to say to each other, we have slipped, we being mostly the Church of England and all of the other denominational churches that had come into England that had grown cold. And these men said, we have slipped from where we used to be. We're nothing like what the Bible is. Let's get back to the Bible. They began to say this among themselves. And they established a club called the Methodist Club. The word Methodist means holiness. And they established the Methodist Club at Oxford University. And they began to glean other young people. And they came into this Methodist Club. And when they graduated, the Church of England gave them churches for them to pastor. And whenever John Wesley went out and started pastoring, he began to preach holiness. And they said, we don't want to hear that. Don't tell us that. We're not interested in that. Tell us 
how nice we look. Tell us, you know, uh, you know, how good we are. And he said, no, you need to hear about the holiness of the Lord. And he and these others, George Whitfield was another one. George Whitfield was a poor guy that grew up uh, with his father. They owned a little, uh, uh, they owned a, 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 a saloon. And uh, the, the men would spit tobacco in, a, in an old pan over there. They'd drink whiskey and spit tobacco in a pan. And George Whitfield, as a boy, had to clean up all that mess when he was a boy growing up. So when he went off to Oxford and he started seeking the Lord, he said, this is the greatest thing I have. He's known as the greatest orator that ever lived, whether you know it or not. Fabulous orator. He once preached in Philadelphia. And, uh, and then one guy said, I'm going to find out how many people he can preach to because he had such a voice he could reach multitudes of people and George Whitfield stood up there and began to preach and uh, that other guy began to back off and he said I came to the end of the crowd there were thousands of people and I came to the end of the crowd and they were down by the end of the road and I kept on backing up and I kept on back and I backed up clear down to the river and I could still hear George Whitfield preaching his voice was so loud so clear and so many and he had a great ministry, a great, many people were saved. And John Wesley began what was called the, the Methodist Church. And it became, he was in, over in America for a short time and finally went back to England, spent most of his time over there. But you know what their message was? It was get clean, clean up your life, live for God, be holy, live a holy life. They would go out to the coal mines, and those coal miners would be coming out of those coal mines. Now listen to that. This is the truth. They'd be coming out of the coal mines. Their faces were black with the coal dust. And they would start preaching to those coal miners just coming out of the coal mines on their way home to eat supper. And they'd start preaching to them. At first they ignored them. The next night and day they were there again. Next day they were there, and they started, they started listening to them. And those men stopped and started listening to George, to George Whitfield and, and, uh, and, and John Wesley, what they were saying. And after a while, they began to cry and tears would run down their eyes. And it would, it would whitewash the black face of the coal that was all over their faces. And they would start crying. And he said, when I saw the first line reach the bottom of the chin, it was time to give an altar call. And that's when he called him and said, come down front and begin to pray. And those men began to pray. They prayed through and got converted and turned to God and started living for the Lord. Now listen to me closely. The donkeys did not understand them anymore because they quit cursing and blaspheming the donkeys. And they had talked and they talked with such nasty words and nasty language. This is in history, folks. This is history. And those donkeys did not understand what they were saying. They'd say, you know, get up, get up, get up, go move, move, get moving. And the donkeys just stood still because they said, we don't know what you're saying. We're not used to hearing this kind of language. They didn't say that, but that's what they were thinking. They had to retire all those donkeys. It's, it's, it's in history. They had to retire all those donkeys. You see what God did for the donkeys? They put them out to pasture and just let them feed from now on. No more pulling cold carts out of the old 
They had to get new donkeys that could understand everyday language like giddy up and whoa and all that kind of stuff, you know, because they quit cursing, quit spitting and all the stuff they did and started walking with God and worshiping the Lord and living for the Lord. And they set England on fire. <clears throat> they brought forth a great revival and it splashed over into America. They had it over here in America. We had that great revival over here and a great move of God. It was called the Great Awakening. And in your notes there, I've got it written out there that John Wesley and Lord Whitfield ignited the Great Awakening Revival in the 1730s is when it started. Returning to holiness was their main message, getting everybody back to holiness. And they got back to holiness and they started saying, "How? what does the Bible teach? Let's look at the Bible and let's live holy. Praise the Lord. Now, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, about that. Uh, also, number two here, before I get into scriptures, the great Holy Ghost revival of the early 20th century. This is around 1900, 1901 is when it really started. 1901, these people were praying, and you know who that, what they were? They were the holiness movement. They were the holiness movement that was doing this. They started praying and seeking God, and one preacher told them one time, he said, now, I want you students, I want you to look at the Bible, and I want you to read in the Bible in Acts chapter 2 and chapter and verse 1 through 4, where they received the Holy Ghost speaking in tongues. And I want you to read over in 1048, and I want you to read in 19, if I'll read these scriptures in there. Read it over in, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 12 about speaking in tongues. And I want you to pray and ask God, is this for us today? Is this for us today? And uh, those students begin to pray and seek God. And the next thing you know, the Holy Ghost began to be poured out upon them. And they began to receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues. And they went out and began to tell everybody. And when they went, they took holiness with them because they said that holy, being holy, is why God honored them receiving the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Trying to be a holy people. And the Holy Ghost, they said, made us able to be what God requires us to be in the Word of God. I'm just giving you history here. This is church history. Praise the Lord. It's just, it's, it's there. It's all in the history. And I'm old enough that I can remember some of those, uh, some of that coming my way when I first got saved. Way back in the 50s, 1950s. Some of that was still around and still going on. Praise the Lord. And so these people began to preach. And folks, they started preaching in all the world. They went all over America. They went to Houston, Texas. They went to Azusa Street. And from Azusa Street, California, Los Angeles, it began to spread. Went to Chicago. Went to St. Paul, Minnesota. It went to, uh, it went all, all over Ohio. Uh, it went everywhere. And then finally it started going all over the world. And people started getting the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues. And when they did, they wanted to get as close to God as they could. And they did not say, what can we get away with? They said, what can we do? Praise the Lord. And they started reading about how women should be modest in their apparel. How they should dress right, walk right, look right, act right, talk right. And all these kind of things. And I'm just trying to tell you here today, folks, that this has not changed. Now, you and I can let it slip through our hands. But when they had great revival and a great move of God, praise the Lord, they said, let's get back to God. 
Let's do the things that God would have us to do. And I want you to know that God still wants us to be a holy people. And if we'll be a holy people, praise the Lord, God will begin to bless all kinds of things that we need the Lord for. Praise the Lord. And so I'm going to read some scriptures to you here from the word of the Lord. And uh, I want you to go to B here with us a little bit. B. The Bible teaches us to maintain, maintain holiness in our lives. Look at uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Praise God. And... Uh, All right, I think I got it here. 619, I'm sorry. 1 Corinthians 619. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For you're bought with the price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And I read the 19th and 20th verses there for you. But the Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost. So if we come to the Lord and God gives us the baptism of the Holy Ghost, remember the Old Testament when they had that temple standing? And they had to, main, they had to keep it holy. There was always a temptation by some king that come along and say, Oh, no, you don't need to keep it holy anymore. You don't need to worry about holiness anymore. But don't forget it. Just let it just let it all deteriorate, let it all fall down. Another king would come by and say, No, no, we got to get back to holiness. We got to get holiness back in the temple of the Lord. Now we are the temple of God. Our bodies are the temple of God. And the Holy Ghost dwells in us. Therefore, we can't do just any old kind of thing. You can't go around smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and and uh and, and spitting tobacco and snuff and all that mess. I don't know if they still do that stuff or not. I've been a I'm just saying there's all kinds of filthiness and how we live and how we act and what we say and filthy talking, cursing, bad words and all of those kind of things, folks. This is what God would have us to be a holy people because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us. Praise the Lord. And we are the temple of the Lord. Now, let me read another verse of scripture to you here. This is one found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. 1 Corinthians 3.16. And know ye not that ye are the temple of God. This is, now that was uh, in, over in the sixth, uh, sixth chapter. This is the third chapter. The spirit of the Lord dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Everybody see that? That's serious business there. So we can't say, oh, I've got the Holy Ghost now and I can live like the devil or I can do what I want to or I can just go any old kind of way. No, no, no. We've got to live holy. We've got to be a God-fearing, holy ghost, God-fearing people. Praise the Lord. And there are things the Bible teaches us about holiness. But I want you to notice here what it says here about us being a holy people. And it says, if any man defile this temple, him will God destroy. That's serious language. Look at Psalms 96, 9. This is just uh, a scripture from the Old Testament. Even in Psalms, they had, 
It says, oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Describing holiness here as being a very beautiful thing. Fear before him all the earth. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. So what we've done here is just sort of show you here some verses of scripture here about holiness. Now, let me talk to you about women a little bit because women can spend a lot of time on trying to be attractive, attracting. And this is what the Bible has to say. This is Brother Myers up here. This is the Bible right here. I'm reading out of this book. Everybody with me? All right. This is the Bible now. Look in what women should be modest in their dress. Women should be modest in their dress. Look at 1 Timothy 2.9. In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel. Everybody see that? And shamefacedness and sobriety. That means being sober about everything. Being not silly. Not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Now, this broided hair doesn't mean you can't braid your hair. It means you don't put strands of gold or, or pearls, strings of pearl in your hair with it. You know how you do, you take, you know how you braid hair? You take three strands, you know how you do like that. You ladies all know what I'm talking about. You know, you take three strands. Well, what they would do is take two strands and then put a strand of gold or pearls in there, and they would mix it all together. And this is what the Bible's talking about. This is a very common practice back in those times. And it's in, uh, not not in the church, but in uh, in the world. Women adorn themselves in modest apparel and same faces sobriety, uh, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. But which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Good works. In other words, be dressed in a very god, godly way, in a godly fashion. Let me also read to you 1 Peter 3, 5, 3, 3, rather. 1 Peter 3, 3. Now, this is Paul talking. This is, Tim, this is Peter talking here now. 3, 3. Whose adorning, let it not be that outward adorning of plaiting the hair. And that's why he's talking about of wearing of gold. You understand what I'm saying? The plaiting of gold in the hair. <clears throat> or a putting on of apparel. In other words, making yourself some elaborate show off. But let it be the hidden man of the heart. And that which is not corruptible. Even the, ar the, the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, of great price, of great price, a meek and a quiet spirit. For after this manner, in the old times, the holy women also, who trusted in God, adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands. Now, I'm just reading these things to let you know that the Bible here teaches us how important it is that women wear the right kind of things and not be a flash. Not be a flash. The Bible talks about uh, Jezebel in the Bible. And she'd paint her face. She'd paint her face. She'd uh, fix herself all up. All paint herself, make herself try to look real pretty. And over in the book of Revelation, it condemns this spirit of Jezebel. And also... Not only in Revelations later over in the 17th chapter, but also 
in this, in that uh, second chapter of, of Revelation talks about Jezebel in it. Uh, I won't go any further into that, only to say that we should always be holy and God-fearing in all things. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 22 and 5. This is an interesting verse. 22-5. This is... Okay, let me find it. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah, I'm, I'm, okay, I, I found it. Deuteronomy 22.5. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. You see that? Now, that's in the Bible here. The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are abomination unto the Lord thy God. That's why pants is wrong for women to wear. Because that belongs to a man. And a man shouldn't be praying around in a dress. That's for, that's for women to wear. And one of the reasons that it's, a very, it's an abomination to the Lord is because, because it, it sort of leans toward this thing of homosexuality. And I can show you the Bible where the Bible condemns homosexuality. I mean, I can give you a, I can give you more scriptures than you've got on your fingers here about God's condemnation of homosexuality. And, uh, Romans talks all about it. It talks about the men and the women. And I'm just trying to tell you here that these things can lead off into stuff. And therefore, men should not wear women's dress up in those dresses and all that kind of stuff. And women shouldn't put on men's pants. Wear dresses. Wear dresses. God bless you for doing it. God will honor you for it. Praise the Lord. So I'm just trying to point out some things to you here about women's dress. Look at the, what, the number two here. My time's getting away from me, so I've got to cover some things. The hair question. Look at this. I'm talking about holiness now. You still with me on holiness? All right. Thank you. Praise the Lord. Look at 11, First uh, Corinthians 11 and verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying having his head covered dishonoreth his head. That's why when men come into church, they shouldn't wear a ball cap or a hat. You know, always taking, you ever notice even, and this is, this is taken from the Bible, believe it or not. And these ball games, these ball players take their head off whenever they sing, you know, they sing the national anthem or they do an honor to the flag or something sometime. Not maybe to the flag, but they pray or whatever. They take their head off. It's because it comes from the word of God, especially when they do the Lord's Prayer. Our Father which art in heaven, they take their head off. Every man praying or prophesying, prophesying means speaking or speaking forth the word of the Lord in your own language. Every man praying or prophesying <coughs> like preaching or teaching or whatever, <coughs> his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, dishonoreth her head. So a woman should have her head covered, right? For that is even all one as if she were shaven. Now I'm going to move on a little further here. I'm saving time. 
Look at verse 13. Judging yourselves, is it calmly that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. Long hair. If a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for covering. That's what her covering is. Praise the Lord. Therefore, she doesn't need a covering. Because her long hair is her covering if it's long. That's why verse 16 says, But if any man seem to be contentious about women wearing a covering, they don't have to because their long hair is their covering. If any man be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. That is of covering the head. So when you can, women, you can come into church, you can have your head covered, you can have a hat on, you can have anything you want on your head, or you can have nothing. If your hair is long, it is your covering. It is your covering. Praise the Lord. That's why we should let, women should let their hair grow and let it be long. Praise the Lord. You can let it hang down. You can put it up. You can put it in a ponytail. You can put it any way you want to do it. Just let it be long because it is your covering according to the Bible. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Are we there yet, Brother Myers? God love you folks. You're such a good people. Such a good people. Praise the Lord. Now, let me give you something very serious to think about. I talked to you about those seven churches and uh, how that that first church, uh, they left their first love. And Laodicean church was getting lukewarm and God was getting ready to spew them out because they had lost so much of that holiness that had been part of them. And I don't need to tell you that much of the holiness that was back in this great revelation, revolu- uh, uh, this, this uh, re- revival spirit that they had back here in the a couple centuries ago, it's all waned away. It's gone away. But we have to maintain it, folks, because Jesus is coming soon and God wants us to have it. Now, we just received communion a while ago. You ready for this? I'm going to read some scriptures, Brother uh, that uh, Brother Worley read to us a while ago, and just bear with me on it. Verse 23, we're still in chapter 11. We haven't left 1 Corinthians 11 yet. We just talked about the women having long hair and men, men not having it. And then it shifts in verse 23, for I, for I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Brother Worley just read this to you. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, and this is due in remembrance of me. Do it in remembrance of, you, of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. <clears throat> so, this is why the Lord said in one scripture in the Bible, except you eat my body and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. And the crowd left him. They said, whoa, that's terrible. 
They didn't stick around long enough to find out he was talking to them about the spiritual aspect of it, talking about communion. And communion, he was going to teach them that communion would be how that we remember the Lord's giving the price on Calvary, shedding his blood and breaking his and his body being broken for us. That's why we receive communion, to remind us of the price that Jesus paid for us that we might be saved. Now look at verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread, drink this cup of the Lord unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Look at that. Wow. We can't receive communion unworthily. It says that. We seldom ever see that. Ever read it. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself. That doesn't mean say, no, 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 I don't ever want to receive communion again. No, no, no. It means, wait a minute, check myself out. You know, look what it says in the next verse. This is what God would have us to do. Verse 30, for this cause, many are, uh, I'm sorry. Verse 28, but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat that bread and drink that of that cup. Examine yourself, check yourself out. Say, Jesus, forgive me of anything I'm doing that's wrong. That's what communion is all about. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, it doesn't say unworthy, we're all unworthy. But this is unworthily, means things are going on in your life. Eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Eateth, drinketh damnation to himself. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. And this is why the Lord wants us to examine ourselves, check ourselves, make sure that we're not doing something we shouldn't do, make sure that we're not trying to live a life for the Lord when we're not really living the life for the Lord. Praise the Lord. And God would have us to be very serious about our walk with God. And God, folks, is going to give us a reward. Now, hear me on this closing statement. Jesus is coming back soon. He's coming back soon. Now, soon you might be like day after tomorrow, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about in the timeline that we have lived for 2,000 years now, it's time for the Lord to come back. And he's coming back for a people that's without spot or wrinkle, a church. And all we have to do is say, Jesus, forgive me of everything I'm doing. I want to do what's right and start doing it right. Start doing what's right. And if we will do what's right and walk with the Lord and pray and seek the Lord and pray, God is on our side. He'll be the best friend you'll ever have. And one of these days you'll hear the trumpet sound and we'll rise to meet the Lord in the air. Can we rise right now and just give him the thanks and praise him? Would you praise the Lord with me right now? Lord, we praise you, we praise you, we praise you. Lord, thank you for your people. Thank you for your people. Oh, Lord, thank you for this church. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for your wonderful presence, God. Thank you for the word of God that, Lord, that's a light unto our feet and a lamp unto our pathway. Thank you, Lord, for these that are fairly new in the church, God, and they're trying to grow in you and learn of you and to walk with you and to love you, Lord, and to know you. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for these who have been around for maybe even a long time, Lord, and they're still faithful to you, still walking with you, Lord. 
keeping fast to the things, Lord, that your word has established in your truth and in our hearts. We love you for all things and we praise you, Lord. Go with us this time and meet back with us again at the appointed time. In Jesus' precious name we pray. And everybody say amen. amen.